Hello, my name is Lucy Ripova and I'm the founder and host of Think with Lucy. This series features startup founders who talk about their startup journey, challenges they had to overcome, the product or service they're building and their vision for the future. I hope this episode will add value to startup founders and anyone aspiring to found a business in the future. Today I'm speaking with Paul Kluet. Paul spent most of his career directing research in the world's most difficult places, investigating everything from violent extremism in Afghanistan to modern slavery in Nigeria. Currently, he's the founder of Amani, a technology startup helping critical information flow from humans around the world to business and humanitarian decision makers. Paul, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Another in-person podcast. It's exciting to see real life people. Super excited to be interacting <laughs> in person. Let's start with talking about your background because you have an interesting one. You studied migration at UCL. Yeah. It's a very unusual subject to choose to study. Can you talk about you know, when you became passionate about migration and why? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, it's a lot more popular now. People will be aware of at least vaguely what happened in 2015, 16, you know, a million people arriving in Europe from Syria yeah. and elsewhere. Um, what year did you study migration? 2013. So before this? Syria. Yeah, yeah, just before. So, so my motivation wasn't to do with that. I, I finished my undergrad and, and actually grew up thinking a lot about um, poverty and inequality on, on a global scale, really, and almost cliche to say, but went into my undergraduate studies thinking, you know, how can I change the world? then came out of it thinking, oh, it's quite difficult. I need a niche. I need to specialize in something. And, and being you know, a migrant myself, um, having you know, been born abroad and then coming back to a country that I was from, being British. Where were you born? Nepal. Yeah, so runs How did that happen? <laughs> my, my parents, both my parents were working for an NGO in, in Nepal. So our family spent a, you know, around a decade there. And then I came back to the UK. I was British, but I was also a little bit foreign to the environment. So I had that running through my veins. And then I had this motivation to do something about what I saw in the world, you know, the inequalities in the world. But very, very quickly realized that you have to, you have to be skilled to make any kind of difference. And you have to have a niche. So I didn't want to just generically wander into the nonprofit world. I wanted to understand something to, mm -hmm. a, to a higher level. And, and uh, migration is what stood out. So what was the course about? What did you learn? It's, it's pretty broad. And, and you know, the, the UK Masters is, is just a year. Actually, it's just nine months long, really. So they, they packed in a lot of aspects of migration. There was asylum, of course, refugee questions and related protection issues. But also we were looking at diaspora. Like how do groups with foreign heritage interact with their homelands? And, and what does that mean for how their homelands develop? In the end, I wrote my thesis looking at members of churches in London who were from, or their families were from various African and Pakistani mm -hmm. countries, and they had projects at home um, to try and make a difference to, to communities at home. And that, and that was the most interesting thing for me. Then the asylum crisis took over, and that's, uh, and kind of took over my career for a bit. You said you spent a decade in Nepal. How was your transition to moving to the UK? Did you feel foreign? So, so the family spent a decade, but I was born and I came here when I was four. Okay, so you don't remember anything about your life in Nepal? I remember bits. I remember okay. bits. And when I visited, it's, it's quite strange. I don't remember enough to, for people there to perceive me as kind of from Nepal. But I feel a kind of comfort with being there. It's mm -hmm. kind of a subconscious thing. It's cool to say because when you're you know, meeting new people, they always ask you where you're from. Yeah. And like saying, oh, I'm, I'm from Nepal. Like, what? I know, I know. It's, it's a good icebreaker, sort of. I always thing. have to judge, like how actually interested they are in that complicated backstory, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you studied at UCL. Were you exploring solutions to helping migrants adjust? Or what, what was going on in your mind in terms of your future career aspirations? When I was studying at UCL? Yeah. I'd say, you know, now, for someone who's interested in migration or asylum issues, you've got a choice uh, when it comes to higher education between taking a more theoretical academic routes and then a lot of new courses especially which really focus on either policy or the practical response, you know, project management under NGOs specializing in this issue. The UCL course was academic, so it's run by geographers. And it, it surprised me because I, I did go in expecting to learn 
how to do something practically about the issues I just raised, but it was very theoretical. It, but in the end, I appreciated that. It stretched my mind in ways that I didn't, I didn't anticipate. You know, it was, I went in wanting the certificate so I could start my career, but, uh -huh. but once I was in, I really enjoyed the learning. That's what mm -hmm. I'm trying to say, mm -hmm. yeah. And what did you do after you graduated? So I graduated, I did a short internship in Singapore with the National University of Singapore mm -hmm. that was focused on Bangladeshi and Indonesian migrants in Singapore and mm -hmm. the extent to which their work experience in Singapore changed things for their often quite low-income families back home. Then I ended up in Brussels working as a policy analyst for a think tank called the Migration Policy Institute, whose, whose founder just died actually last week, so worth mentioning, Dimitri. Rest in peace. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very impressive and kind man. Spent two years there. Uh, What was it about? That job? The thing In Brussels? Yeah. yeah, so the Migration Policy Institute, they really specialize in guiding policymakers. So the way, the way to understand it is if I pull this lever as a policymaker, mm -hmm. you know, if I build a fence or if I pay for a certain project or if I um, lobby a certain minister in a foreign country, what's going to come out the other end? What's going to happen? So a lot of the analysis we were doing in those two years at the Migration Policy Institutes, trying to understand what's an appropriate response to this migration crisis. If you imagine all the ministers across Europe responsible for migration issues, they were trying to balance often their personal conviction of we want to help with electorates mm -hmm. who were pretty worried and pretty scared about a million people arriving, right? So trying to reconcile those two opposing views was tough. How would you assess the reaction to the 2015 crisis of, of uh, influx of Syrian refugees into Europe? Whose reaction? The public's? No, the, the political leaders' okay. reaction and, and their actions to deal with it. Yeah, I think um, we have to cast our mind back because so much has changed. In, in 2014, the Refugee Convention, you know, the Geneva Convention that says refugees have certain rights was sacrosanct. I mean, countries wouldn't touch it and they would uphold its rules. Even, even the more authoritarian-leaning countries would generally re, you know, respect its principles. What uh, were the principles? That if someone enters your country, they have the right to ask for protection. Um, you won't stop them entering your country. You'll give them the right to ask. You might not grant it, but they have the right to ask and to go through a fair hearing and then to receive a decision. That, that all changed. Um, a couple of things happened that changed that. Um, One was the early reaction to what were at the time tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of people arriving was for a lot of governments to say, we're going to help. Angela Merkel is the famous one here in Germany. She said, wir schaffen das, we'll manage, we're going to help. And then the numbers kept increasing and the public, publics across Europe um, decided it was too much too fast. And... You know, a lot of political leaders reacted by judging that and saying that that was, that was the wrong reaction. But based on what has public decided it was too much too fast? Based on what? Um, I think fear of the unknown. So you, you don't know what's going to happen when people are arriving of their own accord. I think, I'm not really an expert in this, but I think even left-leaning politically-minded people like order in their lives, right? So even if, you know, you've got the biggest heart, you're as generous as, you're the most generous person you know in your friend group, you still want to be in control of that generosity. You don't want to be overwhelmed. And I think that's what Europe, Europe's leaders didn't understand. Can you give us examples of maybe what European leaders should have done to yeah. manage it better? <laughs> that's tricky. We've got the benefit of hindsight, so... I think a lot of it's to do with signaling and communication. So in my subsequent work uh, for CIFAR, uh, where I spent the first couple of years of that working in origin countries um, or working on origin countries, so you know, directing research in Afghanistan or Ethiopia, where a lot of Eritreans were coming through, um, not actually Syria, but some work in Turkey where Syrians were passing through. I think a lot of it is signaling. A lot of the people we'd speak to in origin countries, they'd say, we've been invited, ultimately. And, and of course, when it comes to Syrians fleeing the civil war, it's absolutely essential that they find safety. For, for some other people, no matter what your politics on what they deserve, it wasn't necessarily the best decision for them to make this difficult overland journey to, to Europe 
where they expected to be welcomed with open arms and, and that wasn't the case in the end. Mm -hmm. So they had misinformation basically where they thought they were welcome and everything was going to be provided for if they come to Europe. Whereas where they actually, when they actually arrived, the situation was different. Yeah, yeah, for certain individuals. We, we've got to be careful not to generalize, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they had misinformation or incomplete information about what the reality was. And this is, you know, it's, it's sometimes difficult to, to swallow if you do lean towards the left or the more generous side, but, but plenty of people regretted their journeys, right? And the logical conclusion of so, if someone tells you they regretted their mm -hmm. journey is that they didn't have complete information to begin with. Yeah. So do you think we should have spent more resources on building infrastructure in Syria, rebuilding their homes there? In origin countries. Yeah. I, I, think, I think the Syrian situation, there's actually nothing that could have been done better, oh, really. really. Yeah, I think, I suppose more investment could have been made in, in neighboring countries, in, in Lebanon, Jordan, mm. um, Turkey. But, but a lot of investment was made. I think in the end, in the end, you've got such a difficult situation in Syria. It, it's hard to say if you tweaked policy, it would have mm -hmm. been different. The countries where you might start exploring that more deeply are, are more stable countries that nonetheless produce um, a lot of people that are, that are risking it all. And we've not got this right yet mm -hmm. as a political body, as a European political body, but interventions are quite common now in Nigeria, Niger, uh, Ethiopia, Kenya even, you know, relatively stable countries where the, there, are, there are more options. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And European, I think European Union did uh, send a lot of resources to neighboring countries, right? Like Turkey, where they yes. spent a lot of money building infrastructure there, which is a much more straightforward way, I guess, for Syrian people to, you know, go to rather than getting on boats and, and uh, going thousands of kilometers to Europe. So do you think we should have spent more resources on on that, on, you know, providing uh, infrastructure to countries that were neighboring with Syria? More, I think it's the wrong question. So I think it's more a question of how should we have spent the resources? Because ultimately what was spent in Turkey and continues to be spent is billions. Like it's a lot of money. Yeah. And the results are mixed, right? Uh, so I think the EU hoped that by spending that money, two things would happen. One, Erdogan would halt the flows in any way. Mm -hmm. um, and two, the money would be spent to make conditions reasonable so that Europeans didn't have to feel bad about Erdogan mm -hmm. halting the flows. There's a long discussion to be had about, did that work? Some, some Syrians clearly stayed in Turkey. Lots of Syrians didn't. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that's really clear is that Erdogan now has a very strong negotiating position with the EU. So mm -hmm. there's, you know, geopolitical impacts beyond migration from that decision. Yeah. And I think Germany let in about a million people in, right? From yeah, about, Syria. about a million, uh, a mixture of Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. Yeah, but um, Syrians got protection most quickly and got residency most quickly. Yeah. And that led to a lot of issues, especially on the crime front. There was a huge increase in crime. And what do you think could have been done differently in terms of helping Syrians adapt to the culture, you know, learn the language, get a job? Do you think that something could have been improved? I would challenge the premise that, you know, the numbers that arrived led to an increase in crime. Mm -hmm. The causal link is not clear. Okay. Um, and actually, I don't know the crime statistics. It's possible that they went up in the last couple mm -hmm. of years. But even if they did, we don't really know what caused it. Right. But you raise a good point about integration. I think when we look at... Um, there are two questions. One is whether or not you welcome people into your society, and the other is how quickly um, you welcome them in. And if you're for inviting people or welcoming people to your society, you need policies that help them integrate and that help people understand what their integration journey is. And it's exactly what you're touching on. So. If you're Syrian and you've got skills back home, are they going to be recognized in the country that you arrive in? Are employers going to understand that, no, you don't speak German, but actually you're very skilled at this thing and you can add value to that company? Lots of questions like that, as well as the more prosaic, just learning the language. Are kids going to find places at schools? Are teachers going to understand how to teach them, teach across the cultural divide? Yeah, lots of questions. And that perhaps to touch on your resource question is where more money should have been put. Yeah. Cool. Anything else you want to say about the Syrian refugee crisis? 
No, I think I better stop. It's uh, <laughs> spent quite a lot of time <laughs> yeah. talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a controversial one, so it can, uh, yeah, it can, yeah. it can be a couple of hours of this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I better know. stop myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then you also worked for uh, the European Parliament, right? Was it in a similar position where you were researching, you know, situation in Afghanistan or? No, I, actually, the European Parliament experience was was pretty short. It was an mm-hmm. internship in the in the translation department. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, interesting window into how that institution operated, mm-hmm. um, but I was in and out in three mm-hmm. months. So, did you feel the burden of bureaucracy? I mean, yes, yeah. I, I think also at MPI dealing with the institutions, yeah. so the Migration Policy Institute dealing with the institutions yeah. in Brussels. Yeah, you can you can feel it. It's a slow moving machine. The quickest they ever moved actually was in response to the migration crisis, you mm-hmm. know, and that wasn't quick. Mm-hmm. And then you decided, hey, I want to start na- start my own startup, so I'm going to apply to Ampler. Um, um, <laughs> there was there was an in between period. So okay, talk about that. Sure. Um, so I decided that Brussels wasn't for me, kind of for for what the reason yeah. you just touched upon. It was a bit too slow moving. I don't think I was really cut out for building a career in the in that policy space. As interesting as I found it, and the best education I got from mm-hmm. working there was, you know, how to right and and structure these arguments but then I I just I wanted to I wanted to understand people and I didn't feel like I was doing that in Brussels so I joined a a non-tech startup called CIFAR mm-hmm. you know as employee employee number four back in 2016 I think that's what gave me the bug for startups even though it wasn't the, the startup of of the type that you know your listeners might yeah. be, might be used to hearing about that operated effectively like a non-profit consulting firm. And that and that's where I started traveling more and I started speaking to a wider range of people and on a wider range of topics, you know, broadened out from migration. That was a few years. And I spent the final two years in Afghanistan and moved on from research. I started leading our program there. You were in Afghanistan yes. physically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Through 2019. In Kabul, in Kabul yeah. Security sadly didn't let me travel to the the more beautiful parts. Um, wow! But you see them from the plane. <laughs> what were you doing in Kabul? So leading our country program, what that means practically is going from embassy to embassy, mm-hmm. telling them about what we do, um, mm-hmm. and trying to persuade them to support it. Uh, so a lot of business developments. And what were you doing? What was the organization yeah. doing? Yeah, so we had various programs, um, but primarily we were focused on research and strategic communications. What type of research? So research to inform strategic communications. So I know that's that's jargon, so I'll explain it. Um, (laughs) Strategic communications might more commonly be known in the city as, you know, public relations. Mm -hmm. But in developing countries, it's often couched in in stratcoms terms, as we we abbreviate it to. Mm -hmm. It has its origins in the military. Americans call it psyops sometimes. NGOs call it social and behavioral communications change. The whole idea of it is that you're using messaging, communications, to persuade people to do things that are in their own interests. That, that obviously has a, it has a benevolent side yeah. and it has a nefarious side. You can imagine that when intelligence agencies are doing it, there are serious ethical questions. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example? Yeah, so... You might remember when the US and UK went into Iraq, George Bush made made a big deal out of the Hearts and Minds campaign. Right, yeah. Yeah. So on the surface, that's persuading people that this is a, a good intervention because if Iraqis support US troops, their job's going to be easier. But there's lots and lots of layers to this. Now, you know, with with attention turning to extremism, for example, in particular Islamist extremism, uh, there are a lot of programs going on around the world looking at how do you persuade people not to join these organizations mm-hmm. or how do you persuade them to leave these organizations, right. that kind of thing. So but, how do you do that? <laughs> um, that's where the research comes in. So you're trying to understand why. Why are people joining? And I think the common narrative is people believe in the ideology, right? I think when we hear about an extremist here, mm-hmm. whether it's an Islamist extremist or a neo-Nazi, we assume that they uh, have joined because they have hatred for other groups mm-hmm. and that, that hatred comes before they join. Yeah. But actually, it's pretty common for them to join and then to develop the hatred. Mm. And they join for other reasons. Uh, and a lot of those are psychological. So you've got young, unemployed men who, who don't have any self-esteem. They really want to 
to be honest, get a job that, so they can make a living, so that they can save some money, so that they can persuade someone to marry them and, and start a life and, and be happy and confident in themselves. All of that breaks down when the economy doesn't work. And then another group comes along and says, you know what, join us. We'll give you that camaraderie. We'll give you that sense of identity. And we'll give you a salary, importantly. Wow, okay. And then once they've joined, yeah, every day they're listening to whatever you know, crazy guy is telling them. Um, and eventually they, they believe it. They drink the Kool-Aid. That's crazy. Yeah, no, it's nuts. And, but uh, but yeah. if you think about their position, you know, they're, they have to take care of their families. And if they can't find any other job, they'll do everything they can to provide for their kids, you yeah. know, whether it's joining ISIS or any other organization. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine that level of vulnerability, right? Unless you've been there. Yeah, yeah so you can imagine, or we, or we can't imagine, like, what it feels like to not only lack income to support your family, but to develop all the psychological burden that comes with that when you're in a society that expects you to provide, what is it like to not be able to for years on end, you know? Then these things that seem like crazy decisions don't seem so crazy. So do these NGOs provide the financial support for people who maybe are thinking about joining a terrorist organization? That's a great question. So I'd say... There are a lot of responses, most of them pretty ineffective. And ineffective because they're guessing at what works. So it ranges from campaigns that counter misinformation. So if you think of ISIS, mm -hmm. uh, putting out a lot of propaganda on, on Facebook or on their own websites, some of the campaigns will set up a Facebook page and to try and counter that information. That's at the most basic level. And then you get more sophisticated so mm -hmm. that when someone Googles, I want to join ISIS, I'm being crude, but, you know, something like that. Yeah. Something else pops up, which redirects them to a message that counters it. So you've got the informational components. And then, as you rightly said, you have the, the livelihoods component. They try to address this issue of why do the young men feel, why, why do they feel an affinity with the messaging in the first place? Is it lack of jobs? Then, mm -hmm. okay, let's, let's try and create those jobs. But it's a really difficult thing to do, to create jobs, as, a, as you know, speaking mm -hmm. to startup founders. I mean, it's, it's a real skill. It takes commitment. It takes capital. All of these things, a lot of these things are missing from the environments we're talking about. But a lot of the guys that join these organizations are not purely profit-driven. What is so attractive about the ideology that they present to them? So, so the ones that join for ideological reasons... Again, I'm, I'm no expert on this. I, I can tell you what I've heard from experts, and they can disagree with me at yeah. some point. I think a lot of resentment has been bred around the world, certainly by military intervention. Again, like we often talk about these issues from a kind of top-level, high-level macro policy standpoints, but if you put yourself in the shoes of an individual... Who, who lost family members to a stray bomb, you know, that, that we consider as collateral for, for a higher purpose, I mean, for him or her. Mm -hmm. that's, that's just a lost family, and who cares about the politics, right? And then they know who did it, and they want, they want to do something about that. It's entirely rational. Who's offering them a way to get redressed for that? The courts aren't. Most of the justice systems in the places we're talking about are not going to offer any level of satisfaction for someone who has experienced loss like that. So if a group comes along and says, actually, I've got a way mm -hmm. for you to feel better about the wrongs in, in your earlier life, then it can appeal. So do you think the answer is no interventions? <laughs> I kind of knew you were going to ask that. Um, <laughs> because a lot of these organizations do get started because, you know, after these interventions from America or other countries. So do you think it could have helped if America did not interfere in their affairs? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of complex drivers as to why violent extremism happens, as, as there are a lot of reasons why the West might intervene in, in a particular country. To ask and answer the narrow question, if there were no interventions, would there be fewer people that sympathize with extremist movements? I think probably mm -hmm. that's the case. Does that mean that the intervention was completely wrong? Not necessarily. I think that's a, yeah, that's a longer conversation, so I'll refrain from <laughs> stating, stating my opinion on, on each particular intervention, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I think it's complex. Let's talk about Antler. Sure. Um, so you worked for a startup. 
you were the fourth employee. How long did you work there for? Um, so four years in the end. That grew from four employees to 34. Yeah. Spent the last year in Afghanistan. And yeah, like I say, that, that really gave me the, the bug for the startup world. Mm -hmm. Even though my job wasn't technology oriented, um, it was very refreshing to work for an organization that was structured that way, that valued innovation, that was efficient, subscribe to all of the principles that, you know, good startup founders talk about in a sector that did not, in a sector that moved slowly, that was, that found it difficult to pivot, et cetera, et cetera. So once I worked at CIFAR, I, I couldn't imagine working for a big institution. Um, and then, and then there was the personal side of, I just grew frustrated with the sector. In Afghanistan, you know, there were good pilots going on and it was relatively easy to get somebody to support a pilot. But when it works, how mm -hmm. do you scale it? Mm -hmm. There were all these artificial ceilings. Good ideas couldn't scale. And there were lots of intelligent people, driven people trying to address this right in yeah. the sector. So I don't mean to disparage the whole sector. Um, but I just became burned out with, uh, with how much effort it took for so little reward. Less so personally, but in terms of the social impact I wanted to see. And then you look sideways to the tech sector. Mm -hmm. There are no such artificial ceilings, right? If you persuade the right people, if you hatch up on the right model, there is no limits. So, so that, was, that was the attractive thing. But I was pretty naive to all of it. Antler offered this, this way in, which was structured. What is Antler? What is Antler? For listeners. Good question. So Antler is a venture capital company. Exists in, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here, 30 countries mm -hmm. now. And they have quite a unique approach to pre-seed investment. They will, they will run cohorts, run slightly differently in every country. But, but in the UK, they will run cohorts in which they invite between 40 and 80 potential or proven mm -hmm. founders to come and join and effectively take part in what is, I think, quite aptly described as a cross between Love Island and The Apprentice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're coming in. Most people without an idea, and a lot of the encouragement at the beginning was, even if you have an idea, put it to one side for a second. And, and you're trying to work out, who can I work with, um, most importantly? Because the founding team lasts forever, hopefully, but the ideas are almost definitely going to change. Your business model is almost definitely going to pivot. So their, their philosophy is team first, idea second. And then just to, just to very practically kind of set out how it works, uh, you've got a 10-week course effectively. During that course, you've got structured activities, which may make you feel like you're on The Apprentice, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then you've got all the unstructured dating of, of everyone else in the cohort, <laughs> yeah. where you're trying to work out who you like, who you yeah. could work with. Does it get competitive? Like, is it five people fighting for one person? Yeah, I mean, it's no secret, right? There's a shortage of technical people. Right. Um, so uh -huh. when there's a good software engineer in the room, yeah. that, And people come with different strategies, and some people come with no strategies at all. I'd say that, I mean, from my, from my point of view, I, I, don't, I don't think strategies particularly worked. In the end, what matters is, do you connect? Chemistry. Yeah, it's chemistry. Do, do you trust each other, you know? I, I'm sure you're going to ask me about lessons. So, you know, I overthought a lot of that. There's, there's a time pressure, right, when you're on Antler. You spend the first couple of weeks where you're receiving content mm. but very quickly that turns into right now I need to be very very much proactive about who I'm going to test this out with mm -hmm. and they have this concept of of tracking out where you where you say okay I'm going to try form a team with you we're going to step out of some of these activities and we're going to spend our days focused on ideation around a, a new business you know if that doesn't go quite well enough you've got this catch-22 like do you track back in and try and find another partner or do you stay tracked out and, and try and work it out? Um, of course, the longer you stay tracked out trying to work it out, the less time of the program you have left. So tricky, tricky. So what was your journey? When did you find your co-founder? At what point in those 10 weeks? So I... And how did you find him? How did you convince him to join you? Her, in fact. Yeah. Her? Yeah. Actually her, okay. Um, so I took my time. To be honest, I, so as I mentioned, I was coming at this... I came from an entirely different sector. And I found the volume of information at the beginning of Antler overwhelming, right? I, I found it pretty difficult early on to kind of make sense of everything. And I thought, you know, 
I'm going to cut myself some slack. I'm going to get to know people and I'm going to see what happens and I'm not going to panic. So it took me a few weeks. In the end, I really hit it off with a, with a couple of people. In fact, the first people I tracked out with, it was one guy, one girl. And we, we started ideating around a particular topic. She was technical. He had a consulting background. Then eventually he decided to track back in. It, it wasn't working out for him and, and me and this woman decided to continue. And we, and we continued to the end of the first 10-week period and the um, investment committee, IC, which is where you pitch your idea. Mm-hmm. So the, the second part of Antler is once you've formed your team, if you develop an idea which is kind of credible, then you'll be allowed to pitch it at the end of this 10-week period. And then if that pitch is successful, then you receive pre-seed investment. So from in 10 weeks, you can go from having not a clue to a pre-seed investment, which, to go back to your earlier question, is pretty attractive when you're, uh, when you're starting from zero. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. Did you get the pre-seed investment? Yes, this is where Imani was born. So uh, my technical co-founder at the time, Sana, we, we tracked out then pitched together and we got the pre-seed investment. And, and at that time, Imani was very much a security-focused tool. We, we've changed a little bit since then. But at that time, what we pitched was, this is going to crowdsource data from real people on the ground and then we're, we're going to apply technology in such a way that we give you insights that help you anticipate some of the more dangerous events that happen on the ground. You said technical co-founder at the time. Is she not your technical co-founder anymore? No, she's not. So, what happened? This is one of the difficulties of the of the process. So, you're trying to work out who do I want to work with for the next five to ten years? Yeah. Within five to ten weeks. <laughs> right. So, um, so so Sana and I we really got on um, when we moved into the second phase of Antler. So after this ten week period, if you get the investment then there's another phase of approximately three months. Mm-hmm. This is changing now, actually. Um, but at the time, there's another phase of three months, um, which ended with, with a demo day, where you would pitch your idea again, but to a wider audience. We stayed together for those three months until the demo day. Um, and there were a couple of points in those three months where we had you know, quite open and honest chats about how it was working. Mm-hmm. In, in the end, we decided that it wasn't. Various reasons, I mean... We obviously had long conversations trying to diagnose everything. In the end, what it came down to was we weren't executing well. We weren't executing quickly as, mm. a, as a partnership. That was to do with communication. It was to do with how our team was structured, all kinds of things. But in the end, we realized, you know, we're not moving this thing forward fast enough. So uh, we've got to change the leadership. Was it maybe because you were more passionate about the topic than she was? No, I don't think so. So, so Sana's background is in data science and she's had a really interesting career applying mm-hmm. that to some quite thorny issues, including while she was in Pakistan, she was helping their defense academy understand where suicide attacks were going to occur. Like really fascinating stuff. So I don't think it was passion for the topic. I, I really think it was leadership styles and collaborate, collaboration styles. We, on the face of it, when we were working together in workshops, it worked well enough, but there was structure there. And when we came out of this kind of very structured environment and it came down to, right, everything is chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, we really have to work out for ourselves what's important and we need to have lots of touch points with each other where we're realigning. We weren't so good at that. Mm-hmm. The communication wasn't flowing fast enough. Both ways. And it was just the two of you at the time at Imani? Yes, yes, yeah. And you were working in person or remotely? About half of that time in person, and then, then we switched to remote working. Do you think that contributed to the issue of communication? Yes. And now you're remote <laughs> still. Now we're remote still, yeah. I think my, my philosophy now on remote work is it's okay if you've already got a really solid relationship. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, your question is prescient. It's, um, it wasn't strong enough before we went remote. Right. Yeah. That's a good lesson learned. I love it. Yeah, Don't huge. go remote before you have a really solid relationship with your co-founder. You know, you can trust yeah. each other, you understand, you know, what, what you care about, what your working style is like, how you communicate. Yeah, exactly. So when you have those gaps on Zoom where you right. can't quite read the body language, you know mm. what the body language is. Right. That's my theory right. anyway, my pseudo-psychology there. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, uh, good one. So let's talk about Imani. So you started Imani, she left after those three months. 
Yeah. And you are the only one. So after she left, I realized very quickly that I wouldn't be, you know, I, it wouldn't be effective taking this forward alone. I have huge admiration for solo founders. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. The amount of work as a pair was overwhelming. A couple of months later, Shireen joined. So she's based in Abu Dhabi. We worked together at that previous social enterprise, non-tech startup, CIFAR, um, for about three years. Mm-hmm. So we knew we worked well together. We had that basis. Uh, and she joined as our COO. So we've been working so from May last year to now. We've been a pair um, and adding team members along the way. Do you consider her your co-founder? Yes. Yeah. We weren't In terms of equity stake? Yeah. Yeah. As well? It's equal. This was... You know, this was a question when Sana left. It was mm-hmm. a question when she joined. There's lots of ways of looking at it. Um, the way I looked at it was our progress by the time Sana left and she joined wasn't sufficient to justify... Effectively, the question we were asking is, should some of Shireen's equity belong to Sana? I think that's the question, uh, if I'm completely honest. I hope they'll forgive me for um, being very open about this. I think that our progress at that point wasn't enough to justify that. And the way, I, the way I actually put this is it makes more sense to start again than to tie up equity in someone who's left at that point in the company's growth. But did, did she not lose all her equity? Because isn't there a one-year cliff period where that's, the vesting only starts after one year? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I think, you know, the ethical side of me want, wants to reward her for the work she did mm. for the company, right? Because she did work hard and has a brilliant mind and plowed this into Imani for three months. But it's just a very practical question of if you tie up your equity at that point, you can't give it to someone else. And like we didn't have customers, we didn't have a product, we didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. So that was a conversation. Like I would rather start again. Mm -hmm. I'd rather call it a day than tie it up because it will hamstring us going forward. And then the same when Shireen joined. Um, She joined at an early enough point that it made sense to give equal equity. And, and frankly, I didn't want a co-founder who had less equity than me because mm-hmm. it has all kinds of implication for the psychology of how you approach the job. Mm-hmm. What did Antler say to this as, a, as an investor in the company? Antler, um, Antler was concerned that we broke up, certainly. And they were we very... We broke up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we broke up. Love Island. I don't know how many Love Island relationships <laughs> last <laughs> beyond the series. Yeah. Some, right? Uh, no, they were concerned... They were mostly concerned about me being a solo founder rather than the intricacies of, of our conversations yeah. around equity. Um, so they wanted to see a solid team put, put in place, ultimately. That, that was it. And, and once we'd done that, it was fine. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's, that's, that's a good reputation for them. I think, I think that's a good, good way to go. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and supporting like, the founders and their decision to you know, do whatever. Is good. I mean, Antler's run by founders, yeah, which is a huge difference, right, between between VC firms. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about Imani. Okay. What is Imani? What do you guys do? So Imani is a it's a data and information platform. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, the product exists as a survey platform. So if you're a customer, an analyst, perhaps working for a risk advisory company, security company, corporation, or even an NGO. And you have to plan a project, operations, and investment in an emerging frontier market or conflict-affected state. You need to know something about what's going on on the ground. What Imani lets you do is hop onto our platform, uh, design a very short survey of eight questions, and ping that to any corner currently of Nigeria or Afghanistan, soon to add a few countries, Mm -hmm. um, and get your answers back within 48 hours. So at its core, it's this information exchange. What Imani is going to become is a, is a crowd empowerment platform where, where we're really giving local people in very excluded parts of the world a channel through which to express their opinion about what should happen in their local area. At the moment, it's very one way, right? You've mm-hmm. got all kinds of actors making decisions that affect their lives and, and the opportunity for them to communicate about how it might affect their lives is pretty limited, it's pretty narrow. So who do you have partnerships with in Nigeria or Afghanistan that helps you collect the information? So we have a, a quite a unique model. We build communities mm-hmm. in these countries. The way it looks in Nigeria and Afghanistan is slightly different because we have to take really seriously 
the heightened security risks in Afghanistan right now, yeah. um, especially, for example, if you're a, a female community member. But Nigeria and the other African countries mm -hmm. we're setting up in now, um, it, works, it works like this. We hire a national community manager, and then they recruit regional managers across the country. These are competitively recruited. Mm -hmm. They understand data. We vet them. We do our due diligence. They become responsible for each of those states or provinces. And then they recruit district-level coordinators. And that's the framework on which we hang the community. Beneath the district-level coordinators, you've got thousands of people who sign up to the community and are ready to respond. And this is a key differentiator between us and there's some other competitors, some survey mm -hmm. panel platforms. Everybody in our community, they know a human face that belongs to Imani. And they know our brand. And, and the idea of this is that they're then motivated to provide more credible data mm -hmm. because they believe by taking part in this community, it's going to make a difference to their their locality, ultimately. So the data is collected in person. The district manager, you know, the regional person comes to each home and speaks to the person, interviews them, or? No, so that's a good question. So this is where the technology comes in. Okay. So the, the human network is the framework on which we build the community. Once the community's community members are onboarded, yeah. thousands of people across the country, they're responding directly to our queries. Mm -hmm. So we're not sending them out to find things out. There are other companies that do this too. You know, you can task people, go mm -hmm. go take pictures of how many Coca-Cola bottles are in this store. Like that, that exists, but oh. it's not that. Okay. We're asking people questions directly. What do you think of the Taliban? What do you think of recent expenditure on healthcare? Are there likely to be protests next week in your area? Who's mm -hmm. going to take part? These kind of questions. So it's more qualitative than quantitative. It's both. It's both. I think that's a key differentiator too. Is we're not we're not asking people or providing safety ratings. Yeah, we're providing rich, granular insight into exactly what's happening and why. But we're yeah. doing that, that at scale. So right now what happens is if you want to, if you're traveling to Afghanistan next week mm -hmm. for a company, perhaps you're being sent by your employer, they're most likely to sign you up to a security alert service. And what that service is going to do is going to tell you that Afghanistan's a five across the board. It's really dangerous. Here are some reasons why. You know, the government changed recently. People are pissed off about that, blah, blah, blah. What we're trying to do is add a layer of granularity to that. Mm -hmm. We're trying to say, right, you're going for a purpose. You're going to a certain part of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. You want to understand what local people think about that purpose, yeah. right? What do they think about? How are they going to react to your presence there and your project, etc.? And rather than just ask one person who might give you, who will give you their biased view, yeah, you ask 500. So do you create reports out of this information? Let's say you ask someone, so what do you think about the Taliban? And they're like, oh, it's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Most, like, mostly how, they say that. How do you ensure the quality of information? And how do you then uh, organize this information to create, to make sense of it? Yeah, so the technology is pinging the survey out. It's bringing the results back. Mm -hmm. We're translating the results into English using our own um, proprietary data set for the translation. Um, and then we're applying about 22 rules, automatic rules, which clean the data and identify suspect entries. Um, there's various ways you can do that automatically. For example, understanding if you know question one and question four are contradictory, then it's a suspect entry, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. At the moment, we also have human checks because we know that you know data quality is really integral to our reputation. Yeah. And then we are generating insights in, in a graphical format, so dashboards. I would imagine that a lot of people in rural Afghanistan do not have access to technology. How do you bring it to them? So mobile phone ownership, or mm -hmm. ownership's a, a strong word actually mm -hmm. in rural Afghanistan, as you rightly ask, but the presence of mobile phones is, has penetrated most of Afghanistan. Yeah. So you can, you can reach somebody, perhaps not via their phone, um, but via someone else's phone. Um, that's almost yeah. always possible. But do um, they have internet connection? Bad internet connection. Yeah. Sometimes no internet connection. You're right. So what, what we do, and it's another differentiator from, from competitors really, is we say to our clients, look, we guarantee we'll get you the results. Mm -hmm. Obviously, ideally for us from a, a business model point of view, we hope that we can ping a link and we get the data back. That's obviously the lowest friction for us mm -hmm. and the lowest cost. But because we're priding ourselves on getting that data no matter what, we have a cascading approach where 
if our technology-based solution doesn't work immediately, then we're using telephone mm -hmm. calls. And if that doesn't work immediately, then, then we're sending somebody. Yeah. How many people do you have in Afghanistan right now? In the community. Yeah, it's about 2,000 at the moment. So we're covering nine provinces in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we just say that, you know, the rest of the provinces, there's 34 in total, the rest of the provinces we can get to, mm -hmm. just not in the time frames that we're promising uh, on our mm -hmm. landing page. Can you talk about who your customers are? Yes, uh, without mentioning them by name, I'm afraid. Yeah, so our flagship customers are risk advisory firms. Yeah. They want to understand, they want to anticipate things, right? And you do that, they do that now with expertise, with experts mm -hmm. uh, who say, you know, based on my historical understanding of this context, this is what's most likely to happen. We're adding a layer there where we're saying, no, now you can ask 100 local people who are experts in their area, of course, yeah. um, what they think is going to happen. So that's one set of customers. Um, Afghanistan, you know, especially has huge humanitarian spending. It's probably going to cross 5 billion um, in the next few months. So NGOs become an important customer there too. Good for you. I mean, yeah, the investment I mean, is there. Yes, yeah, it's there. It's there. The market's there. It's big. There's, what's that old saying that they say with startups? You know, startups rarely starve, they drown. There, there's a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So the biggest risk to ask is distraction. Mm -hmm. What is the product we're building? Who are we building it for? Yeah. Do you work with any financial institutions? I would imagine a lot of traders or hedge funds would be interested to understand the situation better from a geolo geopolitical perspective? Yeah, that's an interesting question. We, so early on in our customer discovery, we spoke to some investment banks. Mm -hmm. And my takeaway, having no background in that, in that area, is they need a very precise, fully formed product. Mm -hmm. right? they, they need insights that, sorry, let me start that again. I mean, they, they don't even want insights. They want the rating. They want to be told that's a four, so price your product X like this, mm. they don't have time to get into the granular detail that we specialize in providing. Right. So they don't really want to know why. They just want to know what. What. Yeah. Okay. But who knows? Who knows in the future mm -hmm. as we develop the product, maybe we'll reach that, you know, level of sophistication where mm -hmm. we're giving them exactly what they need. And underlying that is all of this mm -hmm. awesome granular data. How about media houses, publishers? Do you work with them? Not systematically. We, we have been testing with a couple of journalists. Mm -hmm. We didn't go hard on that group because the ones, the ones that have the willingness and ability to pay tend to pride themselves mm -hmm. on their own networks. So this would be a different way of working for them. And you know, getting, getting a client to work in a different way is a lot more difficult than getting a client to do what they're already doing faster or more robustly, mm -hmm. or you know. Mm -hmm. um, so media houses are definitely on our list, but not at the top. Have you ever had any accidents where Taliban interfered in your ability to collect data? No. No, I mean, uh, we, we have a lot of very uh, stringent, both cybersecurity and behavioral checks mm -hmm. in Afghanistan that make it difficult, even if they did breach our systems, to link one handset to the wider purpose of, of what we're doing. Do um, they know you exist? Does the Taliban know that yeah. Imani exists? Hard to say. They've certainly never approached us. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect not. Well, uh, keep that in mind. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk about how your business model works? How do you make money? Yes. Um, so at the moment, we have two ways of buying access to Imani. Mm -hmm. One is pay-as-you-go you pay us per response. So you, you come to the Imani platform and you say, I, I want to ask eight questions to 100 people and we'll charge you per response. Mm -hmm. The other way is a subscription. We're targeting this to enterprises and there we're, we're offering you know, a more customized yeah. suite of tools. And that includes the ability for them to manage their own network. So you can imagine a corporation coming, they're interested in the Imani network and the data we can get, but they also have 40,000 employees mm -hmm. around the world that they're not harnessing in this way. Um, so then they can use the Imani platform to manage those 40,000 and, and collect data from them too. Mm -hmm. What are your expansion plans? What do you want Imani to be five, ten years from now? Yeah. In terms um, of product, location? Yeah, so, so I think we'd like the product to evolve in such a way that when a customer comes onto the platform, they don't feel like they're conducting a survey. What they feel like is they're having a conversation with a local community. 
we also want the local community to feel like that. So it, it's difficult to execute. We won't be the first to try it. We're well aware of that, but we think it's hugely worthwhile because there's the social elements, of course, but it's also extremely lucrative to help companies make much better decisions about the countries that they're operating in. We've identified about 50 countries that we'd like to be in in, in the next five mm-hmm. years. And that's where our thinking stopped. So 50 countries. That's an ambitious goal. Yeah, yeah, no, it absolutely is. We're going to have to start. Uh, well, we're adding four now. That'll bring us up to six. Which ones? Ethiopia, mm-hmm. Sudan, Libya, and Niger. Wow. Yeah. Those are, yeah, very conflict-driven countries. Yes, very tricky, very tricky. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Well, uh, if anyone listening can speak any languages from those countries or has any experience, I'd be very interested in an email. <laughs> you have access to, obviously, a vast amount of data from, from these countries. What insights can you share with us that are not generally known or generally available? Yeah, interesting question. There's, there's obviously a vast amount you could say here. I, I think one of the interesting things I've found running Imani is when you're asking local people what they think i i didn't realize how many preconceived notions i had about mm. what they would think mm. so i'll give you an example to make it less abstract yeah. we ran when we were testing this time last year we we're testing our community in nigeria we ran completely without their permission uh, we ran a, ra- a rapid poll gathering in insight into what people thought of shell Mm-hmm. in Nigeria. So Shell, massive operation in Nigeria. They're spending hundreds of millions on security. They're making hundreds of millions in profit each year. And, you know, I kind of expected, because of all the scandal that we hear about Shell in Nigeria, and they were taken to court last year for, uh, you know, kind of the mess they created in, in the Niger Delta, you expect people to kind of be a little bit angry about mm-hmm. this. But no, um, the results came back. They love Shell. Shell creates jobs. And right. that's what's important. Okay, interesting. So Again, I'm generalizing the whole country, right? But, you know. <laughs> they, they don't really think about the bigger picture? They're more interested about, is this company going to pay me? Yes or no? Um, I, yeah, how would I put this? I, I suspect, and again, like there's lots of layers to this too, mm. but I suspect it's about the priv- privilege or the luxury of being able to think about long-term issues when you've got really short-term needs. If you feel financially secure, you're not worrying about mm-hmm. putting food on the table, of course. Yeah. And so you're going to worry about other things, climate change, for example, or your environment, or, or worry about other people. Yeah. I think if you, if you grow up in a country where there's no real social safety net, you've got to hustle your way to an income or mm-hmm. there will not be one, then you view the world a little bit differently. That, that's my hunch. But yeah, you have to bring some Nigerians onto your next podcast to, to really understand. I would love to bring them in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can arrange that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Obviously, Afghanistan has been covered heavily in, in the past six months by yeah. all media. What do you think about the media coverage of, of conflicts in third world countries? Do you think they do a good job? Do you think they do a bad job? What do you think about the bias? So I think it varies. That's the cop-out answer. You have some really excellent reporting but I'd say you've got, to, you've got to segment the media for this. So, so you have your factual reporting from war correspondents, from the BBC, from CNN. They, they tell you the facts, and I, I think they're pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, they, of course, have their leanings. They've, they have to decide what's going to be interesting for my audience and what they think is interesting, what their yeah. audience thinks interesting is interesting. It's perhaps not so important for Afghans. So you've got that bias built in. Mm-hmm. That's nothing to do with the skill level of the reporters. Um, and then you come to the other end of the spectrum. You've got a lot of print journalists, for example, or documentary makers or, or what, what have you, that they need interesting stories. It's really important they exist because without human interest stories, people don't take an interest. If someone tells you that X percent of Afghans are hungry, it's easier to shrug off than right. if someone writes a detailed, a detailed analysis of how this family just sold their daughter mm. so that they could eat. So it's important they do that. The problem becomes when that becomes the only narrative in country. Afghanistan, you know, it's, it's a huge humanitarian crisis, so perhaps it's a bad example. But take Nigeria. You've, it's a thriving African economy. You can go on holiday to Lagos next week. You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You have a great time, you know. 
but there's also a humanitarian crisis in the north of the country. So if you're only getting the, you know, the, hum the tragic human interest stories, that, that will shape your opinion of, of Nigeria and it might put you off traveling there, it might put you off investing, and that's problematic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where, that's where journalists sometimes fall down. That's where media houses sometimes fall down. Are you, are you presenting the positive side, you know, where relevant? Why did you get into Nigeria? Because you had experience working in Afghanistan, right? So it yeah. makes sense for you to get into Afghanistan, but why Nigeria? Um, so I had some experience working there, mm -hmm. uh, not as long as Afghanistan, but sev yeah. several weeks running a project there. But the, the real reason was opportunity for, for Imani. In, in Nigeria, it's huge. You've got the nexus between you know, economic opportunity mm -hmm. and security issues. Right? It's, there's a lot to manage if you want to invest in Nigeria, mm -hmm. but there's huge reward if you do so. What type of opportunity? Natural resources? Yes, natural resources. Very educated, smart population, so human resources. You've got uh, like quite a thriving startup scene now out of Lagos. Um, some of the most interesting fintechs in Africa are based mm -hmm. in Lagos. Wow. You know, famous, famously, Mark Zuckerberg existed, uh, visited, right, and, uh, and kind of drew attention he to did. this. He did, yeah, yeah. Twitter just set up in Ghana. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of it's a different view of that region of the world than, than some people might have grown up with. And that, that's the one really journalists should be putting out because that's, that's most of the time what's happening in Nigeria. Is it, is it people are being attacked? No, it's people are going about their business mm -hmm. and doing really incredible things. I've heard that Mark Zuckerberg is providing people in Africa with free phones that have Facebook installed on them <laughs> and you could access internet only through Facebook. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I did hear of that. I don't know where it's at it's at the ridiculous. moment. Did he have, is that still going ahead? Did he uh, cancel? I, I'm he not abort? sure. I think I heard about it about a year ago. Yeah, yeah, no, me too. But it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's Facebook, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's the whole business model. How, how do you, yeah. People literally think internet equals Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, people. yeah. No, and that's a massive problem. Yeah. We go back to the beginning of our conversation about misinformation. Yeah. Yeah. So knowing all that you know, how has your worldview shifted? How's my worldview shifted? Yes. Um, because you have access to so much data and so much information that regular people don't. Yeah. So what, what I, is your worldview? You know, it, it's cliche to say, but I, it's more complicated than I thought. I had pretty strong ideas as a student, for example, about what's good for the developing world mm -hmm. or, or, or certainly what's bad for it. Now it's, it's really not black and white. It's grayscale. It's, think about that Shell example. You know, perhaps as a student, I would have said, you've you got to do everything you can to curtail Shell's activities in Nigeria. Yeah. But now, you know, jobs matter. Mm -hmm. People matter. Mm -hmm. Op opinions matter. And they, they're often not aligned with mine. So what causes or trends should we pay more attention to? Ooh, um, I think the world is really waking up to climate change is a long time coming but obviously that's very important mm -hmm. but i think the, tr the trouble with you know when we're thinking about global problems is it is very trends driven so you know climate change is obviously a big one and uh, yeah i think i'd put it at the top of my list as things we should be worried about but really if you don't sort out jobs and incomes you can have, you're just going to have so many other problems. It's, it's the root cause of so many issues, from conflict to, well, everything, that, um, that I think we should still be doubling down on working mm -hmm. out. How, how do we sort that out? Like, why, does, why can't we have more startups based in London? Why can't they be based in somewhere that, where capital is not flowing? Or why can't VCs, why do VCs feel so uncomfortable investing in Accra, Lagos, Nairobi still? It's changing. It is. But you compare the flows, it's incomparable, the amount that's invested in London and Silicon Valley compared to Africa. That's true. Yeah. yeah, that's true. And even Silicon Valley compared to the UK, like the valuations of Good startups point. are yeah, yeah. incredibly different. How can regular people like myself advance your mission? Is there anything we could do to help Imani? Oh, to help Imani specifically? 
Yeah. Yeah, or help in general, I guess. Yeah. In, in uh, you know, countries like Afghanistan, is there anything I could do to be useful? I think really practically what you can do is help us connect the dots, right, mm -hmm. between our own experiences, mm -hmm. which are very much rooted in the countries we're working in, and what our, how our potential customers think about the world. So I guess very practically, you could get on our platform, you could mess about with it, or you could send me an email and we could have another conversation, for example, and translate the data we're getting into useful formats for an increasingly broad range of potential users, not even customers, potential mm -hmm. users. Interesting. Any other thoughts? Anything else you want people to know? No, I think I think I've rambled at you long enough. I think uh, it was a very insightful and deep conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad was, you did. I learned a lot. I feel like uh, yeah, I downloaded a lot on you. So thanks for the <laughs> both the conversation and the therapy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hope it stays in here. <laughs> But Absolutely. thank you so much, Paul. No, thank you, Lucy. Thank you for listening to this discussion. If you enjoyed it, make sure to follow the podcast to hear about new episodes. You can also find me on Instagram or Twitter under Think with Lucy. Let's highlight the gray area that is often overlooked. Let's show nuance. Let's think.